Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And in this episode, we have a merge request that might spell the end of X11 for GNOME, which would then move to Wayland only. We also have the release of Ubuntu 23.10, uh, but the download was quickly pulled after Canonical realized there was something not right in some of the translations. We also have Mastodon being way more popular than we thought because they didn't count their user numbers properly. We have big stuff coming for running Windows apps on Linux. We have WordPress joining the Fediverse and a lot more. So as always, all the links I use to create this show are in the show notes. All the links to support the show are in the show notes as well. So let's begin with GNOME, X11 and Wayland. And I never held it as a secret that I am pro Wayland. I use Wayland on every single one of my computers, whether it's on GNOME or on KDE. Well, I mostly use KDE these days. I think X11 had its time. It's now way too old, unmaintained, insecure, and generally just a patchwork bit of spaghetti code that can never evolve to support newer hardware. So it's time it's being retired. And it looks like a bunch of people uh, seem to think the same, at least for GNOME. Because there's a new merge request that was opened in the GNOME project, proposing to basically remove uh, easy access to X11 in the desktop environment and moving to Wayland only for the next release. So GNOME already embraces Wayland and generally the whole newer modern Linux desktop stack with Wayland, with desktop portals and with flatpaks. But X11 support is still here for people who prefer it and for people who want it. But this might not be for long because this merge request is only the first step and it would remove the ability to start an X11 session from GDM, which is GNOME's login manager, by simply removing the desktop file that gives access to that. So if you've ever used GDM and switched between X11 or Wayland, when you select your user in this login manager, you've got this little like cog wheel at the bottom that you can click and you can select either GNOME or GNOME with Wayland. The default for GNOME is using Wayland. Some distros might implement something different, but GNOME as a default ships with the Wayland session as the original one that you should use. But you still have the ability to select the X11 one, and that's this selection that would be removed with this merge request. You could still add this file back manually if you can recreate it or, or download it from another install, uh, and you could still start an X11 session. The code to run X11 and GNOME on X11 would still be there for now, but by default, you would not be able to do it. It's not a retirement of X11, it's just a strong signal that this is old stuff and that it's not secure and that that's not the future and that's not what anyone is working on anymore. So yeah, it's a signal of, hey, if you really want it, you can still add it, but it's clearly not our focus right now. But this is only the first step because for next, they want to propose completely removing support for X11 entirely. Like you could not start an X11 session on GNOME at all. This wouldn't be for the next GNOME cycle, but probably for the other one. And it is just a merge request. So it could be not approved. It could be denied. Uh, there are a bunch of comments under there that point out a bunch of bugs with Wayland, a bunch of stuff that isn't supported yet. Of course, uh, the person who made the merge request just said, hey, you know what? It's not removing the ability to start X11 altogether. It's just, it's not the default and we don't want it. Distros would still be able to ship with an X11 session file by default. Uh, some distros already do. 
and destroyers would still be free to select X11 as the default. But it's just a signal to say, no, X11 is not what we want. It's not what we're going to support right now. And it's not unexpected. Like Fedora 40 already has a proposal to drop X11 altogether, regardless of whether GNOME wants to support it or not. Plasma 6 is also recommending using Wayland. Although they don't remove X11 support, they will not work on X11 anymore, uh, apart from fixing a few bugs and patches. Even the multi-monitor support for Plasma in Plasma 6 has moved to the compositor and is now handled using Wayland, which means that the K-screens settings daemon that handled multi-monitor arrangements on X11 will only receive security fixes and no new features. So it's abandonware at this point. No one wants to work on X11, no one wants to implement more support for it. And so, yeah, this is another signal that it's time that application developers ported their apps to, uh, to Wayland to stop using X Wayland when they need it uh, for now, and also for desktops to finally finish up and polish up the Wayland sessions and fix all the remaining bugs, fix all the remaining issues with, for example, screencasting, uh, Electron app developers moving to a newer version of Electron that supports Wayland to finally fix all the issues that could be fixed by just moving to a new version of Electron. It's just a strong signal. And I think it's a good thing. Distributions will still be able to ship X11. Users that use distros that don't have the X11 session will still be able to add it back for now. But at least it sends a message. Wayland is the future. There's no two ways about it. X11 is basically dead. Next, this week, we had the release of Ubuntu 23.10. And then the download was quickly pulled out, uh, preventing users from downloading the ISO. The reason is that some ill-intentioned idiots decided to use their access to translations in various languages to slip in some really hateful stuff and political stuff in the installer of the distro, uh, replacing normal strings of text with basically their own really ill-informed and disgusting opinion. Uh, this also affected all various flavors of Ubuntu that used the, their new, their recent installer, uh, because those translations were in the installer entirely. Uh, apparently it was a lot of pretty provocative political stuff uh, relative to what's happening in Ukraine and Israel, uh, which obviously has nothing to do in the Ubuntu installer. It's not like they added another field to talk about this stuff, which would still be really bad and, and not completely appropriate. Well, not appropriate at all, but they replaced various strings of text by their political message, which no matter where you stand on any political spectrum is dumb and has nothing to do in there. It just should not be here at all. So ISOs have been pulled. They might already be out again by the time you're listening to this uh, without all the offending text. And it's a wonderful release apart from that, all things considered. I have a dedicated video about Ubuntu 23.10 on my YouTube channel. You can check it out using the link in the show notes, but I'm still going to give you a small recap of what has changed. So first they added a new tiling extension. It's the tiling assistant extension that was already available for any GNOME user. It supports quarter tiling instead of just edge to edge tiling, splitting your display side by side. But it also supports uh, tiling the window to the top or the bottom part of the screen. Something that's probably not super useful for most people on widescreen displays. But if you use your display in portrait mode, as somebody pointed out under my video, uh, that's actually pretty useful. It does also have this kind of little pop-up where if you tile an app to one half of the screen, it will offer the other open app. So you can just click on the icon and automatically have that app use the other half. That's pretty useful. And you can disable all of this if you don't want this uh, from the Ubuntu settings. 
There's also the brand new app store called App Center for Ubuntu. It's a snaps first app center, but it does support Debian packages. Uh, when you search for an app, you will see results for Debian packages and snaps in the dropdown and in the results list, you can filter uh, through snaps and Debian packages. Although if you click on the snap, you will not get a dropdown to install the dev package and snaps are the default format that is being shown here if a snap is available. Still, it's a great application. It's much, much faster. It looks much better than the absolutely horrendous, outdated fork of GNOME software that Ubuntu used previously. They never really kept it up to date with the recent releases of GNOME software. So it was slow, it was bloated, it really lagged a lot and it just did not look very good and it lacked a lot of information. The new App Store still is not as full-featured in, in terms of the data about each app that it displays uh, compared to Discover or GNOME software, but it's still a step up compared to what Ubuntu shipped before. There's also a new firmware update tool. Uh, the default install method when you install 23.10 will now default to a standard install that has less apps pre-installed out of the box. Uh, you're not getting stuff like LibreOffice, GIMP, a photo manager or stuff like that. You just get the essentials. You can still get the full install, but it's not the default option anymore. And you can also uh, access a new experimental encryption feature in the installer. If your computer has a TPM 2.0 chip, you can now encrypt the whole drive using that chip so you don't have to type a passphrase every time you boot your computer. It's less secure for some people, but it's also way more practical for a lot of other people. So yeah, it's it's probably a good thing. It has a lot of restrictions anyways. It can't be used with dual boots. It can't be used if you have external modules to the kernel like the NVIDIA proprietary drivers. So a lot of people will not be able to make use of it. And it's still experimental. So only use it if you know you're ready to lose all the files that you have on your disk if something goes wrong. And of course, Ubuntu 23.10 comes with the latest Linux kernel 6.5 and with GNOME 45 with its new workspaces indicator that replaces the activities button with improvements to the background apps feature. There's a new keyboard backlight indicator in the quick settings. There's a new split header bar design for Nautilus, the settings and a bunch of other GNOME apps. There's better Nautilus search with a button that lets you search the whole drive instead of just the folder you're in and its subdirectories. There are improved settings and a lot more. It's a really really solid release for Ubuntu. It's not an LTS, so it will only get nine months of support. But if you generally just use the intermediate releases of Ubuntu and you move to the latest one, this one is definitely worth the update. It's really good. And also it shows that Ubuntu still has some stuff to bring to the Linux desktop. They're not just sitting on their current experience, they're iterating on GNOME again. They're providing their own apps and experience on that. And if you like Ubuntu and you don't mind snaps, it's a very good thing. So it's too bad that this release was marred by some hate-filled individual that felt a distro installer was the right platform to spew their rhetoric. But in the end, it's still a fantastic update. And if you're an Ubuntu user, you definitely should upgrade to that if you don't want to stick to LTS releases. And now it's time I tell you about our sponsor, Thunderbird. So Thunderbird is sponsoring this podcast and has been for more than a month now. And Thunderbird also, incidentally, is my email and calendar client of choice. Uh, it's just fantastic. If you used it in the past, you might have been a bit annoyed at the interface, which wasn't that modern. But with the latest release of Thunderbird 115, they completely revamped it. And it's an improvement in every single way. Because if you like the previous interface, you can still replicate that. 
But if you want something more modern, you now have complete control over the interface density, over the panels that are being displayed, where they are being displayed, where the buttons are sitting in the header bar. You can choose which buttons you want to see for each view, for the calendar, for the contacts. There's a new account setup wizard that is much better than previously. It's just a wonderful application. And it completely replaced a Geary and Gnome calendar for me. I just use Thunderbird. Plus, in the future, they're going to introduce an Android version, which will be able to sync with the desktop version. So all your organization, your tags and everything will be kept in sync between your smartphone and your desktop. So it's really, really cool. It's available as a flat pack. So there's just a one click install and it's super easy to use. I really recommend it. So I left a link to it in the description of this podcast in the show notes, and you can click that to install it from Flatpak, or you can just head over to their website to download any version, because of course it's not just on Linux, it's on Windows and Mac OS as well. Really heavily recommended, and thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of the show. Now, if you tend to run Windows programs on Linux, you might have heard of Bottles, which is this nice little app that simplifies using Wine prefixes. It basically automatically creates them for you. You can install applications into prefixes, which are called Bottles, and you can just change all the settings, the environment variables, the parameters for DXVK, VKD3D for games, uh, change the various tricks, uh, like, like everything supposedly included in Wine tricks, or everything else in between so you can choose the Windows version. It's just a fantastic app if you want to run Windows programs on Linux. But you might be happy to learn that the developers are working on a more advanced project called Bottles Next. It's not an update to the current Bottles client, it's a completely new application. It's written in Go instead of being written with Python and some shell commands, so it should be way more flexible as an architecture. And it will also be available for macOS users, not just for us Linux desktop users. So that's pretty interesting. The goal for this new app is to simplify the use of bottles compared to the regular app. Basically, you will get two ways to use it. You get the classic way, which is the same as the current bottles app. You create your bottles manually. You can manage them manually. It works just as what you know, basically. But there's also the bottles next experience, which will completely obfuscate all of this bottles management. You just install an application and it will automatically create layers and the bottles and the changes and everything in between that you need to run this application correctly. So it's gonna be way simpler for newcomers to get into it because they won't have to understand the concept of a wine prefix, of a virtual C drive, of various overrides for each application and each bottles. And if you install an app in the same bottle as another one and you change the overrides, it's gonna change them for the other app that you already had installed. It's just way easier to understand and it's completely transparent for the user. Now there's a more controversial change, which is that the user interface will by default move to an Electron-based one using Vue.js. The current Bottles app is a fantastically designed libadvita slash Gnome application. Now, fortunately for people who use Gnome, you will still get an alternative front end written using libadvita, so you can still keep your whole native toolkit experience and not use something like Electron if you don't want it. But I guess it was easier for them to have this one single interface to support Linux and macOS at the same time. Now that new Electron interface will also support the Steam Deck with a nice view of all your applications or games with nice covers to illustrate them. 
and you will also be able to share all your bottles with your friends, so they'll be able to replicate your configuration in just one click. You will be able to back them up and to restore them as well. And yeah, it's just a lot of cool stuff. But one more important feature that they're gonna add is community installers. If you used Lutris in the past, you know what that is. Basically, someone creates some kind of install script that automatically sets all the variables, all the overrides, all the right versions of everything. And so you know that the app is going to run because it's basically reproducible at least to every, in regards to everything that one uses. Your systems libraries might not be replicated there, but if you have the same basic config for Wine, it should work perfectly. Now, they do say that these community installers will be more complex to create than Lutris installers, because Lutris installers, you can just specify which Wine tricks you want to run, which executables you want to run, where to download them, and it's going to do it. Uh, for, for Bottles, you will have to understand how Bottles is structured, and you will have to be a little bit more in-depth, but it's still going to be very interesting to install apps in one click, especially for very popular ones. So this new version of Bottles is not available just yet, it's in early stages, and the current Bottles app will keep receiving some updates and some small features here and there, although the developers clearly specified that Bottles Next will be their main focus. I don't quite know why they want to keep both side by side, because when the new one releases, unless it really lacks a few features compared to the current version of Bottles, there's no reason to keep the old one when the new one can work in the same mode as the old one, but also has a new mode as well. And the interface will also have a libidvita client, so you're not really losing anything. But apparently they want to maintain both versions side by side. So it's pretty exciting, and it's gonna make running Windows apps on Linux even easier. And it's also going to open the doors for that to macOS, uh, which is not as easy as Linux uh, to run Windows apps on. So that's pretty cool. Now, it looks like Mastodon is actually a lot more popular than everyone thought, because apparently they've been undercounting their user numbers by an enormous margin. It turns out Mastodon has 400,000 more monthly active users than previously thought, and 2.3 million more registered users uh, on all servers because they forgot to count 727 servers in total, uh, which means there were a lot of users that were not accounted for on the statistics that are available on joinmastodon.org. So the actual total number of users is 1.8 million monthly active users and 10,000 active servers. That represents an increase of 5% for month-for-month -month users and 12% for the number of servers. So Mastodon is not only an alternative to proprietary social networks and centralized social networks, it's also a relatively fast-growing one, especially if you compare it to stuff like Threads from Meta, which consistently loses users month after month, even though they introduce more features. No one really signs up for this, or at least people leave faster than people sign up, which is never a good sign for a relatively recent app. Or if you compare it to Twitter, because I'm never going to call that X, it's a stupid name and it always was, uh, Twitter is slowly declining. They're losing users month after month because, well, the management is dumb, but they're making absolutely atrocious de decisions. There's no way anyone can defend what they're doing there uh, unless you are completely nuts. Uh, but still, uh, Twitter is still the largest platform in its category. It has more than 245 million daily active users. So it's more than 100 times bigger than Mastodon. So whether Mastodon is growing fast or not, whether it 
undercounted its number of users. It's still a very, very small competitor, but it's still cool to see it growing when all other platforms are currently really declining. And it's always tough to count uh, accurately the number of users of open source projects because generally there is no tracking. So you have to resort to other methods to get an accurate picture of how many people actually use your stuff. Uh, that's been a big problem for Linux distributions and desktop environments because how do you count the number of people who actively monthly use your distribution or your desktop or your software if you don't have tracking? You can't. You can count the number of downloads of an ISO. You could have an optional telemetry thing to report that, like what Ubuntu is doing. But generally, that's not accurate because a lot of people will disable it. You don't really know. And that's a problem. For Mastodon, it's a bit easier because, well, you know how many accounts are being created, but you have to aggregate all that data from all the servers. So it's difficult. But I'm still glad to see that Mastodon is thriving. It's the only social network that I currently use for my own needs and for my channel, unless you count YouTube and Discord as social networks, but I don't. Uh, and the experience on Mastodon has really been fantastic. My interactions with people are just way friendlier, way better. There's all the tools you need to block people who are harassing you or being very annoying, even though there haven't been many on Mastodon compared to what I had to face on Twitter uh, when I was using it. And so I actually deactivated my Twitter account this week. I hadn't been posting there for, I think, more than a year now, uh, but I wasn't planning to go back to it as long as it's following its current absolutely horrendous trajectory. So I decided might as well get rid of it. And if someone tries to impersonate me there for whatever reason, since it's a cesspool anyway, it's easy to just say, hey, somebody's impersonating me. Like, what do you expect? It's Twitter. It's terrible. Now, still on the topic of the Fediverse, it looks like WordPress will join it more readily now. As WordPress.com users, so people who rent a website from WordPress directly, now have access to the ActivityPub plugin. And this will let users plug their websites into Mastodon, but also every other part of the Fediverse. For example, each new article that you write on your website can generate a new Mastodon post, uh, which will be posted by the account of your website that's, that exists on the Fediverse when you use this ActivityPub plugin. And users can reply straight from Mastodon, for example, under this article, and these replies will be translated into comments under the article on the website itself. And for example, Mastodon users could also just follow your website from Mastodon and get all the new articles and updates this way. And obviously I'm saying Mastodon as an example, but it also applies to any other platform that uses the ActivityPub standard. I've been personally enjoying all this set of features for this specific podcast because it uses Castopod, which also uses ActivityPub. So people can follow the podcast itself on Mastodon. I think it's a TLE, at TLE News Podcast. Uh, at podcast.thelinuxexp.com. That's a very long handle. Uh, but you can follow it directly from Mastodon or anywhere else. You can listen to the episode from there and you can comment under that post. And all these comments will also appear on the podcast website. It's a really cool level of integration. And I think it's how social networks and the internet were meant to work. Everything should be able to interact with anything else. And people should be able to use their platform of choice to follow all the types of content that they want without having to create multiple accounts or use different applications to interact with people that are using different social networks. You shouldn't have to create an account for Twitter, one for Facebook, one for YouTube. You should have just one social account 
that lets you follow everyone with just one single app and filter and everything. That's how things were meant to be, and that's how things are on the Fediverse. So it's nice to see WordPress joining in as well. As far as I understand it, if you self-hosted your website, you could already use this plugin, uh, but the but the website you rent from WordPress directly uh, couldn't access it yet. So it's good that everyone now has access to it. Now this week we also got some nice Linux hardware as well. Uh, first from System76, they keep expanding their Thelio lineup, Thelios being their own desktop PCs, their tower PCs. Uh, they have a really nicely built case with customizable panels that you can change. They're made out of wood, different colors. It's really pretty. And so they added the Thelio Spark to the lineup. This one is aimed more at everyday users for office work and, and just email, web browsing. And they also say 1080p gaming. Uh, it can accommodate up to an i5-12500K with 64 gigs of RAM, 32 terabytes of storage, and up to an RDX 4060 but the base configuration uses an i5-1250-400, 16 gigs of RAM, one terabyte of SSD, and just the integrated graphics for $999, which I find a bit steep for a desktop computer, even one really well designed and mostly open source. Uh, but yeah, that, that's the price. Now on top of that, uh, Slimbook, which is another Linux hardware vendor based in Spain, now has a partnership with Fedora. And so they now ship the Fedora Slimbook, which is one of their laptops, it's their Executive 16 laptop, but with Fedora pre-installed. And funnily enough, it's the exact same configuration I've been using up until the beginning of the month, and I was running Fedora on it as well. And if my experience is anything to go by, it's a perfect device. It has great support for Wayland, it has a giant touchpad for gestures in GNOME and Fedora, which is awesome. It has very solid internals, an i7-12700H, an RTX 3050 Ti, it's got a 16-inch panel at 90Hz, and it's 3K resolution, it's 16 by 10 It's upgradable uh, in terms of RAM, you've got two slots, you've got two SSD slots as well that you can access, it's got a 1080p webcam that doesn't completely suck, and it has a lot of I.O. including Thunderbolt 4. It's really lightweight, portable, powerful, I really loved using this laptop. It was just a bit too underpowered in terms of VRAM for my editing needs because the RTX 3050 Ti only has 4 gigs of VRAM and that was just not enough for me to run DaVinci Resolve. But for everyday tasks, for gaming, it's for light gaming at least, it was really, really fantastic and it's been my companion for I think about a year. If you buy it, of course, from Slimbook, well, the one I had didn't have the, the Fedora branding and it was just a Slimbook device. But basically the one you can buy, the Fedora Slimbook, is the exact same laptop, but with some Fedora branding. But also it will support the Fedora project and the GNOME Foundation. 3% of the revenue uh, from the sales of these laptops will go to the GNOME Foundation. So if you want to see how well this thing performs, I made a video when I got it. Uh, on the YouTube channel, it's basically the exact same hardware without the Fedora super key and the branding, so it should still be relevant uh, to know how well this works. Now let's move on to our usual roundup of performance optimizations for Linux and critical bug fixes. So we'll start with a fix for GNOME uh, that's coming, and it should greatly improve the performance of devices that have multiple GPUs, like hybrid graphics laptops. In Mutter, the, the GNOME compositor, apparently frame rates using the secondary GPU were limited, which meant that they just did not hit the max refresh rates of the display of your device. 
and apparently disabling something called dynamic max render time results in actually reaching the right frame rate. For example, uh, the developer reached 60, 60 FPS instead of 30 using an AMD setup, or went from 65 to 130 Hertz with the Nuvo drivers and an NVIDIA GPU. So they opened a bug report uh, to upstream that fix. So hopefully in maybe currently during the GNOME 45 cycle or maybe for GNOME 46, we should see better performance on hybrid graphics devices with not so limited frame rates. We're also seeing some patches from AMD to their drivers coming in, notably for power management for their next generation of GPUs. So for once, when they release their new cards, we might actually have decent support for them because this has been a long running issue with AMD. Sure, their drivers are open source, but also when they release a card, you have to wait for a bunch of weeks before the drivers are actually up to snuff in Mesa. And you have to wait for months sometimes for the distros to package these updates to the Mesa drivers. So sometimes if you buy an, an AMD GPU right when it releases, <laughs> you're going to have to do some manual work or you're going to have to wait for a while until you're actually able to use it. Now this week we also had an update to Qt, which is the toolkit used by KDE. Uh, version 6.6 .6 now better supports Wayland with what they call handoff support. What it means is basically that Qt applications will not simply crash when the Wayland compositor crashes. So for example, when Kwin crashes in KDE, they will be able to migrate to a fallback compositor and stay open and move back to the Wayland compositor once it's restarted. This has been a big issue. Uh, patches are already, I think, in Kwin to handle that. And now that Qt 6.6 .6 handles it, it should work well, at least for Plasma 6, you won't get that on KDE 5.27, I think. But that's good because currently on KDE, if your Wayland compositor crashes, every single app you have open will just die. It will just die and you're going to have to restart it and you're going to lose some work. This is a big, big issue that I encountered myself. So having that support is going to be a godsend. And finally, we have an update coming to curl, uh, the venerable command line download program that is used by basically everything. And it should fix a very nasty vulnerability. But the details of that vulnerability are still under embargo, uh, apparently. It's to avoid malicious attackers from taking advantage of this flaw, so they did not disclose it yet. But they are already preparing a fix and they are going to release curl 8.4 outside of its normal release cycle because this flaw is rated high severity and it's been dubbed the worst curl security flaw in a long time. Curl being, just like wget, a big attack vector uh, for like malicious scripts and everything to download stuff onto your computer and run it without your knowledge. Uh, so you can look forward to that. It's nice to see a big flaw caught and fixed before it was at least very publicly exploited in the world. There's no telling if this flaw is already being used or not, uh, but at least it's going to be fixed before it's being disclosed, which is always good. And now let's talk a bit about uh, GitHub and GitHub Copilot. And it looks like this is not such a great product for Microsoft right now. They're reportedly losing a lot of money with Copilot. Microsoft is apparently losing $20 per user per month on Copilot because it turns out that running some giant machine learning models on thousands of repos hosting code requires a lot of computing power and thus costs a lot of money. And if you add that to the massive investments Microsoft made in OpenAI, which is 
the basis for Copilot and admittedly maybe the most advanced machine learning system out there for now and also very badly named because it's no longer very open, uh, if you add that up you get some big monetary loss. At least depending on how many users this thing has. If, if Copilot is used by like 2000 people then it's not a lot of money for Microsoft. Now Copilot is also being spun off into Office 365 at a higher cost than GitHub Copilot. And so it's one of two things. Either Microsoft wants to position themselves as the leader in what they call AI, but it's basically just machine learning. It's not AI as everyone like knows it. It's not general AI. It's just one simple task. Well, simple, relatively simple task that the AI can perform. Uh, and so no matter the cost, Microsoft decided they want to be the leader on that. And so they're going to accept the losses. Or the other thing might be that some people at Microsoft are just jumping on the latest trends without a business model and without thinking it through. In the first case, it would not be the first time Microsoft used its financial power to try and steamroll the competition, accepting giant losses in the process until their actual product actually makes money when competitors are dead and they can raise the prices. That's what they did with Xbox, for example. Xbox might not be as successful as the Switch or as PS5, but it's still a profitable avenue for them and they basically bankrolled it up until now by the other sources of revenue from Microsoft and they managed to turn it into a profit center. Uh, they're actually making money even though they don't have the biggest market share. If it's the second case, uh, basically some people like Microsoft saying, yay, AI is so cool, let's do AI everywhere, no matter the cost, it also would not be the first time Microsoft has jumped on a bandwagon without a business plan or a solid strategy, like with Windows Phone, for example. They just realized that they needed to have a smartphone and they invested tons of money without thinking it through. They bought a manufacturer that was basically dying. Uh, they released Windows Phones again and again and again. They had way too many products, a unreadable product line, plus some hardware partners that sold Windows Phones occasionally plus some updates to the system that made everything incompatible, plus no apps. They just did not think it through, and so they failed. And maybe that's going to be the case with AI as well. Maybe they're just spending money hand over fist until they're going to realize that actually this thing does not really make money from consumers. Maybe we should have stopped before. Who knows? In any case, I am personally pretty happy to see a tool like Copilot not being a runaway success because none of the ethical or licensing issues have been solved yet. This tool was trained on open source code and it can regurgitate entire segments of that code without any attribution or without any license. These things need to be solved before these AI products can be sold to consumers. The data they use for training needs to be regulated or at least somewhere in the world a court needs to say, this is not infringing on the license if you use it to train a model but it needs to be specified. For now, it's a big gray area. And that's why I just refuse to use anything that is powered by AI because it feels like I'm stealing from people who actually made the stuff the AI was trained on. And as usual, we're going to finish this episode with the gaming news. So first, the Steam Deck has now dropped from the top 10 sellers list on Steam. Well, just the top 10, it's 11th. But still, it's a big indicator because Consistently, the Steam Deck has been in that top 10 list for basically the whole time it has been out. So I think it's a year and a half or a year and eight months or something like that. 
And now it finally dropped to the 11th place. It's still very high because that's the global Steam ranking. So out of everything that Valve sells, uh, sells from Steam, it's still the 11th most sold thing in the world. That, that's very high. But it's also not very surprising to see that the Steam Deck is now not selling as well as it used to because competition has increased a lot. Since the deck released, a lot of other companies have released their own handheld gaming devices. Uh, the ROG Ally, I think Asus also. Well, the ROG is from Asus. Uh, there's a Lenovo Legion one as well. There's the One X Player stuff, the Ionio stuff. There are a lot of competing devices. And the Steam Deck is almost two years old by now, which means that it's not as powerful as some of the competition, and maybe it has reached, well, it's slowly reaching saturation for the target that is interested in this specific device, because even if you're interested in handheld gaming, you have a lot of options. The Steam Deck might not be the thing that you're interested in. So possibly the Steam Deck will lose spots bit by bit. Valve said that they did not have any plans to replace it very soon. They said they the Steam Deck still had a few years in it, but honestly, with the competition being there, I think if they see it drop faster, they're gonna move forward with plans to, to ship something with a little bit more oomph, uh, because while the Steam Deck is a perfect indie gaming device, for AAA titles, it's just not really up to snuff, like you're gonna squeeze out 30 fps if you lower the details to the minimum it's not the best experience and so it would definitely benefit from one of those new amd apus that are made specifically for these kind of devices if you add to that all the optimizations in SteamOS made for gaming compared to other competitors running windows which is obviously not as well optimized then you're definitely going to have a winner on your hands i don't know if valve is planning to do that but i would be surprised if they didn't accelerate their plans to ship a successor to the Steam Deck soon. And still on the Steam Deck, there was a small update to SteamOS 3.4.11, still not SteamOS 3.5. Uh, it's just a small update uh, to, to change the firmware of the device, notably with a fix for an issue that would set the TDP way too low on the Steam Deck, which would cause the CPU and GPU frequencies to be stuck at very low values with bad performance as a result. So it's nice to see that they are still updating it. Uh, SteamOS 3.5 will be bigger. I don't quite remember. Has it been released already? Because it has a lot of cool changes. Uh, it's going to be a big, big update. I think I already have it on my SteamOS console, but that's because I'm using the beta channel. I'm not sure if my Steam Deck already had it. To be honest, I haven't touched my Steam Deck in a while because the games I've been playing recently are just more demanding and I have a better experience on my TV. But uh, some people recommended Undertale, uh, which seems to be right up my alley. And for some reason, I never played it. It looks like a great uh, game for the Steam Deck. So maybe I'm, I'm going to pick it up again soon. And now finally, it's official. Counter-Strike 2 will not come to macOS. It has a Linux version for mainly the Steam Deck, I guess, even though I don't know if many Counter-Strike players play on the Steam Deck uh, with a controller, but maybe. It has a Windows version, obviously, but it will not have a macOS version. They said, uh, well, Valve, they said uh, they made a decision to not support older hardware that only supports DirectX 9 or 32-bit, and also to not support macOS, because all of these platforms combined were less than 1% of all active CSGO players. It's pretty funny to me to see Valve lumping macOS in general, like all Macs, in the same category 
as like very old hardware running DirectX 9 maximum or 32-bit at most. Like they're basically saying this is an obsolete platform, which like to be fair, it isn't really, but for gaming, it always has been. Like you can't game on a Mac, even on modern Macs. Like some people will try to spin the game porting toolkit as a fantastic way to play games on Mac. This is not happening. This is not happening. Like no one is porting their games to, to the Mac natively this way. Unless Steam does the same thing for macOS than they did for Linux with some kind of Proton thing integrated natively. There's no way gaming on macOS picks up apart from a few choice games every year. Nothing's happening on that sense. And it's only going to be a, a hacker thing to try and use the game porting toolkit yourself. Even just looking at YouTube videos, the performance is horrendous. It's just It's just not good. So yeah, I guess it made sense for Valve to just drop it, but CSGO was on macOS, and CS2 is basically delivered as an update to CSGO, something that has been controversial. It basically replaces CSGO entirely with Counter-Strike 2. But yeah, it probably made no sense to keep supporting such a small fraction of the users, especially since delivering a native version of macOS would imply either toying with the game porting toolkit, which still looks like a big fat beta, or just porting it using Apple's native APIs, uh, namely Metal, which is neither Vulkan nor DirectX, so it's not a standard for the industry, and a lot of developers just don't want to spend the effort for less than 1% of the market share. Which is very interesting in regards to how Linux is positioned these days, because yes, Valve has the Steam Deck, so obviously their games are gonna have a Linux version to run on the Steam Deck, even, even if it's just something packaged with Proton inside, they're gonna support Linux as a platform. But macOS is just completely, like, abandoned uh, by game developers compared to Linux. And it's fun, because macOS has a lot more market share on the desktop than Linux, but for gaming, developers do not care. And that's because Linux has all the tools you might want to actually get your game running. Whether you want to have a real version of the game, you can use Vulkan. We've got a real graphics API that developers know how to use and is well supported by most uh, game engines. And if you don't want to make a native Linux version, you have Proton and Valve will actually support Proton to fix some issues in your game. So. You have options. On macOS, you don't. It's either game porting toolkit, which doesn't look really like a way to run the game. It's a way to test how well the game might run. Or you use Metal as an API, which means basically either using a game engine that has Metal support and maybe limiting what features you take advantage of, or completely rewriting your own engine to work on that, which is obviously a lot of work. So it's fun to see that Linux is now a preferable platform to macOS for game developers. Pretty fun to see. But also, like, Linux hardware can be way more powerful than macOS, uh, well, hardware that macOS runs on. So that's also probably an incentive right there. And the Steam Deck doesn't hurt because it still has a bunch of million users, which is a nice target for game developers. So this will conclude this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, all the links I used to create the show are in the show notes. All the links to support the show are in there as well. And there's also a link to our sponsor, Thunderbird. Thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.